tell anybody. It's just been so much um, flawed from the very outset. And if you ever get a chance to uh, read a little bit of the origin of the species, good luck. It'll bore you uh, beyond words. It's about bird beaks and pigeons. And uh, Darwin's study of bird beaks and pigeons, he derived from all of that that fish developed legs one day and reptiles showed up and then somewhere along the way humans showed up so that's that's pretty much the gist of it but there's so much uh I, i'm going to talk a little bit about, about technology and how technology has just been in like warp speed i'm going to share a message most of it is coming from isaiah 53 if you want to find that we really appreciate you being here this morning for coming and for those who have joined us online um I welcome those. Uh, I, I, I met someone on a phone call, and maybe they're, they're watching, so I welcome you, Dustin, and I hope you, you are watching. Um, but we live in such an advanced age of technology. Um, think of this. 35 years ago, DNA profiling was used to solve a crime for the very first time. And it really wasn't even in our country. It was in a little town called the Chestershire, England. And uh, Dr. Alec Jeffries was the one who used DNA profiling to solve a crime. Um, the year before that, um, Carrie Mullins was the one who developed and invented, they call it invented, the polymerase chain reaction, the PCR chain reaction to identify DNA and it's just such a complex when, when you try to read how they developed this and how it's still being perfected in many ways um, but listen to all of the you've probably heard the news since DNA profiling has been used to solve crimes that it's been used to get innocent people out of prison now that's the travesty of the justice system that can convict someone and sentence them to prison who did not do the crime. So somewhere along the way, the evidence had to not be right. I, I don't know, that's just my summation, that something was wrong there. Um, but you've seen the stories. Uh, people have been incarcerated for, for 20 plus years. All of a sudden, the DNA of, of that crime scene is uh, reviewed and and they're proven innocent. Now, I don't know what they do for people like that, what kind of settlement. You cannot give people back 20 years of their lives. But that just shows you the technology. And for the sake of the day, um, I'm going to take a look at an, an injustice that is probably the worst case of injustice that has ever been perpetrated on anyone, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's why we're going to Isaiah 53. I, I've titled this The Scandal of Grace. I was trying to come up with a different title, Sloan, The, the Scandal of the Cross, but it was just a scandal of grace. Um, and that song just kind of embodies what I'm going to be sharing this morning on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Um, the two criminals next to the Lord are not identified. Their names are not given. Um, we know a little bit uh, about their conversation. We know that one of them became a believer and the other one died, sadly, in um, rejection of Christ. 
we do probably know this, that to be crucified that way, you were a cursed person. Cursed is those who hang on a tree. So their bodies were probably dumped in what they called the Valley of Hinnom, which was a garbage dump, but only people who were cursed, their bodies were thrown there. There was a continual fire at that valley for garbage and for bodies of those people who no one would give them a decent burial. From that valley of Hinnon, uh, the word came about Gehenna as another word for hell. And Jesus used that word many times in referring to hell fire. He didn't say Hades, he had Gehenna. So that whole valley where these two bodies of these two men were dumped, one though, Jesus said, your spirit will be with me in paradise. But the man in the middle, what was going on there with Jesus in the middle of such a horrific scene? I want to take you to Isaiah 53, and I want to just pull out some statements from Isaiah's prophecy. And mind you, this is hundreds of years before the scandal of the cross really took place. But you find these words, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And later on it says, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That's how people could have looked at Jesus on the cross. He, he was between two criminals. He looked like a criminal. He was bludgeoned like a criminal. He looked like he had done something terribly wrong i want to show you a, a few scenes from the the passion of the cross mel gibson's passion of the cross and these are scenes that we look at them differently we look at it from this side of grace but if you were there in a public execution people would be looking at jesus whether they recognize him or not or someone didn't tell them who that was he looked guilty he looked like he was stricken by God and afflicted. He looked like there was a judgment against him. Um, you know, public executions, we don't have that anymore. In fact, people hardly get executed anymore. But in 1865, when Lincoln was assassinated in April of that year, four people three months later were executed in a public execution. All four people were hung at a fort there, and among them was a woman, Mary Surratt. And Mary Surratt, it's an ominous picture. You can pull it up. You might not want to see it, but it's, it was a, a public execution of the four co-conspirators. There is probable evidence that she was not aware of the plot. You said, what was her part in that? She owned the boarding house where the co-conspirators laid out their plans. And probably really what caused her to be declared guilty of participating is that her son was one of the co-conspirators. But there was not really any clear evidence. But they were so upset with what happened to Lincoln that they wasted no time in doing a public execution, this was their kind of revenge against the people who orchestrated this horrific assassination. So if you looked at Jesus and the two men next to him in a public execution, I think 
just a common person would look at that and say, look at him. And the first slide is a little bit more of, of who he looked like in a, in a bigger setting if you were standing away from him. But above him was written a sign, and this I don't think was a common thing. Pilate did this. But in three different languages, Pilate put a sign over him. And, and you can see this sign in the next clip that he is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, written in three different languages. Now, the people who had orchestrated all of this objected to what Pilate did. They said, you, you need to change that because he said he was the King of the Jews. He wasn't really King of the Jews. He just said he was King of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I've written... Why did Pilate do that? It's kind of like this guy was so beset with the, with the paradox that he looked at Jesus and he knew that man was innocent. He even told them more than once, that I don't find anything wrong. Why do you want to have this man executed this way? But the pressure, the political pressure, and we don't know political pressure doesn't cause anybody to do anything. But the political pressure on Pilate, he caved in and and when we go through this, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, well, somebody, somebody could have did something different, but this was predestined. This was arranged by God. If, if Judas hadn't betrayed Jesus, somebody else would. And if Pilate hadn't have executed Jesus that way, somebody else would have. He was going to be crucified as the sacrifice for our sins. And the last scene is a little bit more of a close-up because there's nobody that's probably did justice to showing how awful the cross was than Mel Gibson. You couldn't even recognize Jesus. If people saw him a day before all of this, they would say, who is that? Because he was beaten beyond recognition. It, it says he was taken later on. It says he was taken from prison and from judgment and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Two things were taking place on the cross. And this is what I want to share with you in more detail. Two things, two dynamics was going on on the cross with Jesus. I, I, I look at those words, accused in absence of wrong. Here's the two things. Number one, the innocent was executed. And the guilty was freed. Now, anybody who is really a, a soldier for social injustice probably can look at the cross and said, there's nothing I've ever seen in my life that equals that. There's no wrong done to anyone that equals what was going on with Jesus. The innocent is being executed. The man in the middle, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, he's not only innocent of the charges, that were brought against him, he was sinless. Not only did he not commit a crime, to the, he, he had done nothing wrong in his entire life. In John chapter 8, Jesus one time, those people who were so against him, he says, can any of you prove that I've ever sinned one time? Now, I've got friends and you've got friends and you've got family members and it wouldn't take us long to point out something we've done wrong. Especially your family. Because sometimes they remind you of it even after they say they've forgiven you of it. 
And he made this challenge. He said, can any of you show at any point that I stepped across the line in any way? So his blood was holy. He was holy. He was sinless. The whole idea of the incarnation is an amazing thing because we don't even know how the composition of Jesus' blood took place because there was no father component, earthly father component in his conception. He was joined to humanity within Mary's womb. No one can really figure that out other than the miracle that he descended into her womb in some way to be joined in her womb as the Son of God, Son of Man, fully man, fully God. At Christmas, we try to figure that out, don't we? And we can't really wrap our minds around it. The innocence of Jesus was never in question. Remember this. It was never in question by the Sanhedrin, by the high priest. His innocence was never in question. The high priest and his group determined that they had to get rid of him. Not because anything he had done, but because the challenge to their authority was too much for them to let him continue on. Everything about Jesus' trial was illegal. They had to pay people to lie as false witnesses, and when they couldn't even get their lies straight with each other, they had to go a different course. It was illegal to have a trial at night, and they had it in the middle of the night. I know people think about Jesus coming in five days earlier with the, all the palm branches and glory to God and the highs, Hosanna, and, and people say, how did a whole crowd turn against Jesus? I personally don't think the whole crowd turned against Jesus. He was arrested, tried at night, and before mo most people were awake the next morning, he was on his way to the cross. So they did this away from public population that he was, had this pub, he was popular with a lot of people. And they had to do it that way. They had to do it in the middle of night, under the cover of night, at Caiaphas' home. It was illegal to have a trial at any private residence. It was always supposed to be in a public setting where witnesses can come, and more than one witness had to say, he did it. It was illegal for them to make the accused incriminate himself. And you know that's how they finally got Jesus to blaspheme, in their mind, blaspheme, and they say, we adjure you by God, tell us who you are. And when he told them, the high priest ripped his clothes and said, this is blasphemy, he's worthy of death. And then they convinced Pilate. So the innocent was on the cross. Jesus is suffering for something that he did not do. He did not blaspheme, he did not commit any crime. But here's the second thing that was going on. The guilty was being set free. Barabbas, think about Barabbas. Now, I don't know if he was that sleazy character in Mel Gibson's movie, but he was a bad guy. I wonder if he became a Christian. I think he should have. I think he had every reason because he got off scot-free. I don't know if he watched the execution, but if he did, Jesus is in his spot. There was a planned execution that day. And Jesus was not in the plan. He took Barabbas' place. 
that was the deal that Pilate said, well, maybe if I get this known criminal, this murderer that nobody respects, maybe if I give them the option of Barabbas and Jesus, they're going to let this innocent man go. This was Pilate's whole idea. And so there's Barabbas. He's as guilty as the two guys on either side of Jesus. But he's walking free. Is that fair? Is that fair? Is that justice? Well, I want to tell you there's justice going on there. There's justice going on. And it's not the justice of man. It's the justice of God. The guilty are going free. Now, Barabbas is, is an example of us. Isn't he? Barabbas is a picture of us walking away from what we deserve and Jesus absorbing what we deserve. And you know, well, I, I didn't, I've never done anything to deserve crucifixion, but we've done plenty to receive the judgment of God. And if we're just going on uh, like the Old Testament of sacrificing animals, that, that never completely deals with our sin factor, does it? So Jesus is on the cross suffering for our sin. Here are some words from Isaiah. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He wasn't dying for anything that he had done. He was carrying our problems. He was wounded for, listen to this, he was wounded for our transgressions. There's a substitution thing going on here, a vicarious thing. Jesus is taking on the punishment for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. We could never have peace with God without what Jesus did. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And listen to this. The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, has laid on him the iniquity, the, the transgressions, the rebellion, all of our sin. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The, those words overwhelm me that the collective sin of the entire human race, Gloria, um, Gaither wrote a song on it's no wonder why he stumbled when he walked up Calvary's road because he was carrying the sin of the whole world upon his shoulders. Not just you and I, but the sin of all mankind, both past, present, and future. He had the whole weight of man's sin on him and satisfying the justice of God there on the cross. All we like sheep have gone astray, would turn to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, some of the words that kind of like I've heard said to me in person, when someone, it's one thing for us to commit sin that we didn't intend to, but when we know we're about to do something wrong and, and just because it, we want to, want to bad enough, we're willing to step across the line. It's one of those things that we know that Sin is in front of us, and we step across the line anyway because we're just so desiring to experience that or to do this. I've had someone say, well, what about me, and what about my happiness? What about me? What if this makes me happy? What if this makes me fulfilled? Knowing that the action they're about to take is against the purpose of God, against the will of God. You know he paid for that sin too. 
He paid for the intentional sins. You know, in the Old Testament, there was different sacrifices for unintentional sin and intentional sin. They made a distinction in the Old Testament sacrificial system. If you sin and you didn't intend to sin, then you could do this sacrifice. But it's a whole different story if you intentionally, you, many of those, you were cut off from the people. You were exiled. You couldn't come back into the camp of the Lord if you intentionally sinned. And all of that, the intentional sins, the unintentional sins, all of it was put upon Jesus. And it comes down to this truth, that God's justice and his righteousness was fulfilled on Christ's suffering. That all of the justice of God and all the righteousness of God that we incurred upon ourselves, he laid all of that on Jesus. Listen to how Isaiah 53 concludes. Yet it pleased the Lord. If you don't think there's something justice going on at the cross, listen to some of the language here. It's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And it didn't mean that the Lord was enjoying that. It was it satisfied his righteous judgment. He approved. Paul starts the writing of Romans in that that the Lord approved of the death of Jesus when he raised him from the dead and declared him the satisfaction of his righteousness over us. Really and truly, if you think about it, sin is not the issue. Faith is the issue. Jesus has already paid for all of our sin. It's whether or not we will believe it. It says, he had pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin... He shall see his seed, which is those who come behind that, this. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. This is kind of like the satisfaction of a debt. It's not like, it's not like other terms of satisfaction. This is the debt has been satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he's poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is how it concludes that all of what was going on the cross was the innocence was being crucified for the guilty. Isaac Watts probably wrote one of the greatest hymns that's ever been written. At 24 years of age, he preached his first message. I think it was around 1696 or somewhere along in there. Two years later, he became the pastor of a church at 26. And his brother, he had been writing hymns during the early course of his beliefs as a believer. And his brother wrote him a letter around 1700 and said, you know what? These hymns are really good. You need to have them published. And Isaac Watts was so involved in pastoral work, he just didn't have time to do it. So in 1709, if you look up when I survey the Wonders Cross, it will show 1709. But that was the publication date. In 1709, Isaac Watts, to satisfy his brother's pursuit of him publishing his hymns, sold all of his hymns, the copyright, to a publisher for 10 pounds. 
And one of those songs was, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Charles Wesley wrote 6,000 hymns. And he said one day, he said, I would have given up all of the hymns I've ever written if I could have written When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Here's the lines of that song. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. If the praise team can come up. The third verse goes like this. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flowed mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet our thorns compose so rich a crown. And then the summary of Isaac Watts. I think you get the feel that Isaac Watts must have preached a lot from the cross. That place of redemption. Were the whole rim of nature mine. That were a present far too small. Love so amazing. So divine. This is a young preacher writing this. Demands my soul. My life. My all. The scandal of the cross. Is that we're forgiven. There is nothing. Those words. There's, there's no better ring to hear those words that you're forgiven you know I think probably some people's greatest issue is that it's forgiving themselves it's letting go of guilt it's letting go of shame Rich Mullins wrote some dynamic song but it was the miracle of shame leaving his life I don't know what baggage you may be carrying from time to time of your past. But it's a baggage that Jesus already carried. Carried it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. You might look at him and it looks like he was nailed to the cross. And you say, Pastor, of course he was. That's not all that was going on there. Paul said that Jesus took the list of offenses against us and he nailed that to the cross. He was nailing a death nail to the power of sin. Sin has no power over you and me. The cross breaks that power. And if there's anyone watching that you're, you're struggling with a sin that just you're convinced you can't get free from it, He's nailed that to the cross. And if you're in this room and there's, there's a measure of guilt that seems to trail behind you, you, you have moments of great peace and then it's all shattered by this remembrance. Lord, I pray this morning that the power of what happened there on that hill, that sin's power was broken. By your death, when you said it is finished, it meant 
that death would no longer have reign over those who would believe in you. Oh, the tragedy of living under a debt that's already paid. Break off that guilt, Lord, this morning. But anyone in this room right here, break off the guilt of the past. That no one sees the weight that he or she is carrying, but they know the weight. And the struggle to have a sense of forgiveness. And I pray for those who are watching, Lord, who are battling guilt and shame when that battle's already been fought and won for us. We embrace your cross, Lord. We embrace what happened there. It doesn't have to be repeated. It's a settled death to sin and to the power of sin. Help us, Lord, to walk in that victory. Help us, Lord, to communicate that victory to those around us who are living in darkness, living in bondage, living under a lie. And the truth of your word breaks the chains. The truth of your word pierces the soul and sets the captive free. Would you stand with me? And in standing, could we just embrace the cross here? say, Lord, I want the full power of what happened there to flow in my mind, to flow in my soul, flow in my spirit. Holy Spirit, have your way in this room. Have your way where someone's watching right now. Enter into that great struggle and break the chains off. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord.
goodness I called my brother up just to make sure I remember the story right I think about people who are falsely accused or implicated it's somewhere when I, I was maybe 10 11 something like that somewhere along in there our little bank in Childersburg across the Coosa River from us was robbed and uh, the investigators was asking the 
teller, uh, we hear that a robber had a beard. Do you know anybody that came in today that had a beard? She says, yes. Um, Winford Lynn came in with, he has a beard. My dad grew a beard. We, I don't even know why. He, but they went and she said, but it wasn't him. Devin wasn't him. So they went and questioned my dad. Shortly after that, he shaved the beard off. You know, I I don't remember him ever referring that, but I, I just like, no, I didn't rob a bank. But sometimes people can be implicated, and you, if there's not a worse feeling than to be even named that you could have been a bank robber. But even that kind of gives you the idea of how some people have been convicted of a crime that even the people interrogating them have serious doubts that they did it. But sometimes they just want to end the case. And after long, exhaustive interrogation, finally they wear people down to admit. But most of us will never find ourselves in that place. The challenge for us is 